End notes of the eventful history of the mutiny and piratical seizure of HMS Bounty, its cause and consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow. End Notes. End Note 1. The discovery of this island is owing to Fernandez de Queros in 1606, which he named La Sagittaria. Some doubts were at first entertained of its identity with Otaheite, but the small difference of a few miles in latitude and about two degrees of longitude, the description as to size, the low isthmus, the distance from it of any other island at all similar, and above all the geographical position, all prove its identity, although Queros calls it what it certainly is not, a low island. End note 2. A missionary voyage to the southern Pacific Ocean. Appendix. Pages 336-342. End note 3. Cook appears not to have exercised his usual judgment in estimating the population of this island. After stating the number of war canoes at 1,720, and able men to man them at 68,800, he comes to the conclusion that the population must consist of 204,000 souls, and reflecting on the vast swarms which everywhere appeared, I was convinced, he says, that this estimate was not much, if at all, too great. End note 4. The words within brackets are in the original dispatch. End note 5. He was born in the Isle of Man, his father being Deemster of Man, and Seneschal to the Duke of Atoll. End note 6. United Service Journal, April 1831. End note 7. Hayward and Hallett, who may thus be considered as the passive cause of the mutiny. End note 8. Quarterly Review, number 89. End note 9. One person turns his back on the object that is to be divided. Another then points separately to the portions, at each of them asking aloud, Who shall have this? To which the first answers by naming somebody. This impartial method of distribution gives every man an equal chance of the best share. Bly used to speak of the great amusement the poor people had at the beak and claws falling to his share. End note 10. If Bly here meant to deny the fact of men, in extreme cases, destroying each other for the sake of appeasing hunger, he is greatly mistaken. The fact was but too well established, and to a great extent, on the raft of the French frigate Medusa, when wrecked on the coast of Africa, and also on the rock in the Mediterranean, when the Nautilus frigate was lost. There may be a difference between men, in danger of perishing by famine, when in robust health, and men like those of the bounty, worn by degrees to skeletons, by protracted famine, who may thus have become equally indifferent to life or death. End note 11. The escape of the centaur's boat perhaps comes nearest to it. When the centaur was sinking, Captain Inglefeld and eleven others, in a small leaky boat, five feet broad, with one of the gunwales stove, 
nearly in the middle of the western ocean without compass without quadrant without sail without great coat or cloak all very thinly clothed in a gale of wind with a great sea running and the winter fast approaching the sun and stars by which alone they could shape their course sometimes hidden for twenty-four hours these unhappy men in this destitute and hopeless condition had to brave the billows of the stormy atlantic for nearly a thousand miles a blanket which was by accident in the boat served as a sail and with this they scudded before the wind in expectation of being swallowed up by every wave with great difficulty the boat was cleared of water before the return of the next great sea all of the people were half drowned and sitting except the bailers at the bottom of the boat on quitting the ship the distance of fayal was two hundred and sixty leagues or about nine hundred english miles their provisions were a bag of bread a small ham a single piece of pork two quart bottles of water and a few of french cordials one biscuit divided into twelve morsels was served for breakfast and the same for dinner the neck of a bottle broken off with the cork in supplied the piece of a glass and this filled with water was the allowance for twenty-four hours for each man on the fifteenth day they had only one day's bread and one bottle of water remaining of a second supply of rain on this day matthews a quartermaster the stoutest man in the boat perished of hunger and cold this poor man on the day before had complained of want of strength in his throat as he expressed it to swallow his morsel and in the night drank sea-water grew delirious and died without a groan hitherto despair and gloom had been successively prevented the men when the evenings closed in having been encouraged by turns to sing a song or relate a story instead of a supper but says the captain this evening i found it impossible to raise either the captain had directed the clothes to be taken from the corpse of matthews and given to some of the men who were perishing with cold but the shocking skeleton-like appearance of his remains made such an impression on the people that all efforts to raise their spirits were ineffectual on the following day the sixteenth their last breakfast was served with the bread and water remaining when john gregory the quartermaster declared with much confidence that he saw land in the southeast which turned out to be fayel but the most extraordinary feat of navigation is that which is related on good authority in a note of the quarterly review volume eighteen pages three hundred thirty seven through three hundred thirty nine of all the feats of navigation on record however that of diogo botelo Pereira in the early period of fifteen thirty six thirty seven stands pre-eminent it is extracted from the voluminous decades of diogo de couto whose work though abounded with much curious matter like those of most of the old portuguese writers has not been fortunate enough to obtain an english translation we are indebted to a friend for pointing it out to us and we conceive it will be read with interest in the time of the viceroyalty of don francisco de almeida there was a young gentleman in india of the name of diogo botelo Pereira, son of the commander of cochin who educated him with great care so that he soon became skilled in the art of navigation and an adept in the construction of marine charts as he grew up he felt anxious to visit portugal where on his arrival he was well received at court 
and the king took pleasure in conversing with him on those subjects which had been the particular objects of his studies. Confident of his own talents, and presuming on the favor with which the king always treated him, he ventured one day to request his majesty to appoint him commander of the fortress of Keu. The king smiled at his request, and replied that the command of the fortress was not for pilots. Botello was piqued at this answer, and on returning into the antechamber was met by Don Antonio Noronha, second son of the Marquis of Villarreal, who asked him if his suit had been granted. He answered, Sir, I will apply where my suit will not be neglected. When this answer came to the ears of the king, he immediately ordered Botello to be confined in the castle of Lisbon, lest he should follow the example of Magallans and go over to Spain. There he remained a prisoner until the Admiral Viceroy Don Vasco de Gama solicited his release and was permitted to take him to India, but on the express condition that he should not return to Portugal except by special permission. Under these unpleasant circumstances this gentleman proceeded to India, anxious for an opportunity of distinguishing himself that he might be permitted again to visit Portugal. It happened about this time that the Sultan Badur, sovereign of Cambea, gave the governor, Nuno de Cuna, permission to erect a fortress on the island of Deu, an object long and anxiously wished for, as being of the greatest importance to the security of the Portuguese possessions in India. Butello was aware how acceptable this information would be to the king, and therefore deemed this a favorable opportunity of regaining his favor, by conveying such important intelligence and he resolved to perform the voyage in a vessel so small and so unlike what had ever appeared in Portugal that it should not fail to excite astonishment, how any man could undertake so long and perilous a navigation in such a frail and diminutive bottom. Without communicating his scheme to any person, he procured a fusta, put a deck on it from head to stern, furnished it with spare sails and spars, and every other necessary, and constructed two small tanks for water. As soon as the monsoon served, he embarked with some men in his service, giving out that he was going to Melinda, and, to give color to this story, he proceeded to Baticala, where he purchased some cloths and beads for that market, and laid in provisions. Some native merchants also embarked with a few articles on board for the Melinda market, to which he did not choose to object, lest it should alarm his sailors. He set sail with the eastern monsoon in the beginning of October, and arrived safely at Melinda, where he landed the native merchants, took in wood, water, and refreshments, and again put to sea, informing his crew that he was going to Kwailoa. When he had got to a distance from the land, it would appear that some of his crew had mutinied, but this he had foreseen and provided for, putting some of them in irons, and promising at the same time amply to reward the services of the rest, and giving them to understand that he was going to Sofala on account of the trade in gold. Thus he proceeded, touching at various places for refreshments, which he met with in great plenty and very cheap. From Sofala he proceeded along the coast till he had passed the Cabo dos Correntes, and from thence along the shore, without ever venturing to a distance from the land, and touching at the different rivers, until he passed the Cape of Good Hope, which he did in January, 1537. 
From thence he stretched into the ocean with gentle breezes, steering for St. Helena, where, on arriving, he drew his little vessel ashore, to clean her bottom and repair her, and also to give a few days' rest to his crew, of whom some had perished of cold, notwithstanding his having provided warm clothing for them. Departing from St. Helena, he boldly steered his little bark across the wide ocean, directing his career to St. Tomé, where he took in provisions, wood, and water, and from thence he proceeded to the bar of Lisbon, where he arrived in May, when the king was at Almeyrin. He entered the river with his oars, his little vessel being dressed with flags and pendants, and anchored at Point Laira, opposite to Salvatera, not being able to get farther up the river. This novelty produced such a sensation in Lisbon, that the Tagus was covered with boats to see the Fusta, Diego Botella Pereira landed in a boat, and proceeded to Almarine to give the king an account of his voyage, and solicit a gratification for the good news which he brought, of his majesty now being possessed of a fortress on the island of Deu. The king was highly pleased with this intelligence, but, as Butello brought no letters from the governor, he did not give him the kind of reception which he had expected. On the contrary, the king treated him with coldness and distance. His majesty, however, embarked to see the Fusta, on board of which he examined everything with much attention, and was gratified in viewing a vessel of such a peculiar form, and ordered money and clothes to be given to the sailors. Nor could he help considering Diego Botula as a man of extraordinary enterprise and courage, on whose firmness implicit reliance might be placed. The little vessel was ordered to be drawn ashore at Sacabim, where it remained many years, until it fell to pieces, and was visited by people from all parts of Europe, who beheld it with astonishment. The king subsequently received letters from the governor of Nuna de Cuna, confirming the news brought by Botello. The bearer of these letters, a Jew, was immediately rewarded with a pension of a hundred and forty mil reyes, but Botello was neglected for many years, and at last appointed commander of St. Tomé, and finally made captain of Cananor in India, that he might be at a distance from Portugal. The vessel named Fusta is a long, shallow, Indian-built rowboat, which uses latine sails in fine weather. These boats are usually open, but Botello covered his with a deck. Its dimensions, according to Lavana, in his edition of De Boros' Unfinished Decade, are as follows. Length, 22 palmos, or 16 feet 6 inches. Breadth, 12 palmos, or 9 feet. Depth, 6 palmos, or four feet six inches. Bly's boat was twenty-three feet long, six feet nine inches broad, and two feet nine inches deep. From the circumstance mentioned of some of his crew having perished with cold, it is probable that they were natives of India, whom the Portuguese were in the habit of bringing home as part of their crew. End note 12. Previous to the writing of this letter, the following copy of verses shows how anxiously this young lady's mind was engaged on the unhappy circumstances under which her brother was placed. On the tedious and mournful absence of a most beloved brother, who was in the bounty with Captain Bly at the time of the fatal mutiny, which happened April 28, 1789, in the South Seas, and who, instead of returning with the boat when she left the ship, stayed behind. Tell me, thou busy flattering tell-tale, why, why flow these tears, why heaves this deep-felt sigh? 
Why is all joy from my sad bosom flown? Why lost that cheerfulness I thought my own? Why seek I now in solitude for ease, which once was centred in a wish to please, when every hour in joy and gladness passed, and each new day shone brighter than the last, when in society I loved to join, when to enjoy and give delight was mine? Now, sad reverse in sorrow wakes each day, and grief's sad tones inspire each plaintive lay. Alas, too plain these mournful tears can tell, the pangs of woe my laboring bosom swell. Thou best of brothers, friend, companion, guide, joy of my youth, my honor, and my pride, lost in all peace, all happiness to me, and fled all comfort, since deprived of thee. In vain, my Lycidas, thy loss I mourn, in vain indulge a hope of thy return. Still years roll on, and still I vainly sigh, still tears of anguish drown each gushing eye. Ah, I, cruel time, I, how slow thy lingering pace, which keeps me from his tender-loved embrace. At home to see him, or to know him near, how much I wish, and yet how much I fear. O oh, I, fatal void, which robbed my soul of peace, and wrecked my happiness in stormy seas. Why, my love Lucindus, why didst thou stay? Why waste thy life from friendship far away? Though guiltless thou of mutiny or blame, and free from aught which could disgrace thy name, Though thy pure soul in honour's footsteps trained, Was never yet by disobedience stained, Yet is thy fame exposed to slander's wound, And fell suspicion whispering around, In vain to those who knew thy worth and truth, Who watched each opening virtue of thy youth, When noblest principles informed thy mind, Where sense and sensibility were joined, Love to inspire, to charm, to win each heart, and every tender sentiment impart. Thy outward form adorned with every grace, with beauty's softest charms thy heavenly face. Where sweet expression beaming ever proved, the index of that soul by all beloved. Thy wit so keen, thy genius formed to soar, by fancy winged, new science to explore. Thy temper ever gentle, good and kind, where all but guilt an advocate could find. To those who know this character was thine, and in this truth assenting numbers join. How vain the attempt to fix a crime on thee, which thou disdainst, from which each thought is free. No, my loved brother, ne'er will I believe, thy seeming worth was meant but to deceive. Still will I think, each circumstance though strange, that thy firm principles could never change, that hopes of preservation urged thy stay, or force, which those relentless must obey. If this is error, let me still remain, in error wrapped, nor wake to truth again. Come then, sweet hope, with all thy train of joy, nor let despair each rapturous thought destroy. Indulgent heaven, in pity to our tears, at length will bless a parent's sinking years. Again shall I behold thy lovely face, by manhood formed, and ripened every grace. Again I'll press thee to my anxious breast, and every sorrow shall be hushed to rest. Thy presence only can each comfort give. Come then, my Lycidas, and let me live. Life without thee is but a wretched load. Thy love alone can smooth its thorny road. But blessed with thee, how light were every woe! How would my soul with joy and rapture glow! 
Ay, kind heaven, thou hast my happiness in store. Restore him innocent. I ask no more. Isle of Man, February 25, 1792. Nessie Haywood. Note 13. This interesting letter is given in the following chapter, to which it appropriately belongs. Note 14. His orders run thus. You are to keep the mutineers as closely confined as may preclude all possibility of their escaping, having, however, proper regard to the preservation of their lives, that they may be brought home to undergo the punishment due to their demerits. End note 15. Voyage Round the World by Mr. George Hamilton, page 84. End note 16. A Missionary Voyage to the Southern Pacific, page 360. End note 17. United Service Journal. End note 18. The Pahosians, on account of the sterility of their country, were in the habit of practicing piracy, which, according to Justin, was held to be an honorable profession. End note 19. These laws are contained in an ancient authentic book called The Black Book of the Admiralty, in which all things therein comprehended are engrossed on vellum in an ancient character which hath been from time to time kept in the registry of the High Court of Admiralty for the use of the judges. When Mr. Luders made inquiry at the office in Doctors' Commons in 1808, he was informed by the proper officers there that they had never seen such a book, and knew nothing of it nor where to find it. The fact is, the book in question was put into Lord Thurlow's hands when Attorney General, and never returned. There is a copy of it in the Admiralty. End note 20. Morrison mentions in his journal a plan to this effect, contrived by Haywood, Stuart, and himself, but observes it was a foolish attempt, as, had we met with bad weather, our crazy boat would certainly have made us a coffin. End note 21. The following shows how much her fond mind was fixed on her unfortunate brother. On the arrival of my dearly beloved brother, Peter Haywood, in England, written while a prisoner, and waiting the event of his trial on board His Majesty's ship, Hector. Come, gentle muse, I woo thee once again, nor woo thee now in melancholy strain. Assist my verse in cheerful mood to flow, nor let this tender bosom anguish know. Fill all my soul with notes of love and joy, no more let grief each anxious thought employ. With rapture now alone this heart shall burn, and joy, my Lacidas, for thy return. Returned with every charm, accomplished youth, adorned with virtue, innocence, and truth. Wrapped in thy conscious merit still remain, till I behold thy lovely form again. Protect him, heaven, from dangers and alarms, and, oh, restore him to a sister's arms. Support his fortitude in that dread hour, when he must brave suspicion's cruel power. Grant him to plead with eloquence divine, in every word let truth and honor shine. Through each sweet accent let persuasion flow, with manly firmness let his bosom glow, till strong conviction in each face expressed grants a reward by honor's self-confessed. Let thy omnipotence preserve him still, and all his future days with pleasure fill. And, O oh, kind heaven, though now in chains he be, Restore him soon to friendship, love, and me. August 5th, 1792, Isle of Man, Nessie Haywood. End note 22. 
the late Aaron Graham, Esquire, the highly respected police magistrate in London. End Note 23. Till the moment of the trial it will readily be supposed that every thought of this amiable young lady was absorbed in her brother's fate. In this interval the following lines appear to have been written. On receiving information by a letter from my ever-dearly-loved brother Peter Haywood, that his trial was soon to take place. O gentle hope with eyes serene, and aspect ever sweetly mild, who deckest with gayest flowers each scene, in sportive, rich, luxuriance wild. Thou soother of corroding care, when sharp afflictions pangs we feel, teachest with fortitude to bear, and knowest deep sorrow's wounds to heal. Thy timid votary now inspire, thy influence in pity lend, with confidence this bosom fire, till anxious dread suspense shall end. Let not fear invade my breast, my Lycidas no terror knows, with conscious innocence he's blessed, and soon will triumph o'er his woes. Watch him, sweet power, which looks benign, possession of his bosom keep, while waking make each moment shine, with fancy gild his hours of sleep. Protect him still, nor let him dread the awful, the approaching hour, when on his poor devoted head fell slander falls with cruel power. Yet gentle hope deceive me not, nor with deluding smiles betray. Be honours recompense his lot, and glory crown each future day. And, oh, support this fainting heart with courage till that hour is past, when freed from envy's fatal dart his innocence shines forth at last. Then my loved Lycidas will meet, thy miseries and trials o'er. With soft delight thy heart shall beat, and hail with joy thy native shore. Then will each hour with rapture fly, then sorrow's plaintive voice will cease. No care shall cause the heaving sigh, but all our days be crowned with peace. With love and fond affection blessed, no more shall grief our bliss destroy. No pain disturb each faithful breast, but rapture all and endless joy. Isle of Man, August twenty second, seventeen ninety two, Nessie Haywood. End note twenty four. The minutes being very long, a brief abstract only, containing the principal points of evidence, is here given. End note twenty five. This journal, it is presumed, must have been lost when the Pandora was wrecked. End note twenty six. It was in this state of mind, while in momentary expectation of receiving an account of the termination of the court-martial, that Haywood's charming sister Nessie wrote the following lines. Anxiety. Doubting, dreadful, fretful guest, quit, oh, I quit this mortal breast. Why wilt thou my peace invade, and each brighter prospect shade? Pain me not with needless fear, but let hope my bosom cheer. While I court her gentle charms, woo the flatterer to my arms, while each moment she beguiles with her sweet enlivening smiles, while she softly whispers me, Lycidas again is free, while I gaze on pleasure's gleam, say not thou tis all a dream, hence nor darken joy's soft bloom, with thy pale and sickly gloom, naught have I to do with thee, hence be gone, anxiety. Isle of Man, September 10th, Nessie Haywood. End note 27. This is supposed to allude to the evidence given by Haylett. End note 28. 
This refers to a very kind and encouraging letter written to him by the Reverend Dr. Scott on the Isle of Man, who knew him from a boy, and had the highest opinion of his character. End note 29. Captain Bly states in his journal that none of his officers were suffered to come near him while held a prisoner by Christian, and Halet was, no doubt, mistaken, but he had probably set it in the boat, and thought it right to be consistent on the trial. It has been said that Halet, when in the Penelope, in which frigate he died, expressed great regret at the evidence he had given at the court-martial, and frequently alluded to it, admitting that he might have been mistaken. There can be very little doubt that he was so, but the editor has ascertained, from personal inquiry of one of the most distinguished flag-officers in the service, who was then first lieutenant of the Penelope, that Halet frequently expressed to him his deep contrition for having given evidence what, on subsequent reflection, he was convinced to be incorrect, that he ascribed it to the state of confusion in which his mind was when under examination before the court, and that he had since satisfied himself that, owing to the general alarm and confusion during the mutiny, he must have confounded Haywood with some other person. End note 30. Volume 2, page 778. End note 31. Some few captains were in the habit of turning over a delinquent to be tried by their messmates, and when found guilty, it invariably happened that the punishment inflicted was doubly severe to what it would have been in the ordinary way. This practice, which, as giving a deliberative voice to the ship's company, was highly reprehensible, it is to be hoped was entirely ceased. End note 32. Information that the pardon was gone down to Portsmouth. End note 33. She had received, previous to this, information of what the event would be, and thus gives vent to her feelings. On receiving certain intelligence that my most amiable and beloved brother, Peter Haywood, would soon be restored to freedom. O oh, blissful hour, O oh, moment of delight, replete with happiness, with rapture bright! An age of pain is sure repaid by this, tis joy too great, tis ecstasy of bliss, yet sweet sensations crowding on my soul, which following each other swiftly roll. Ye dear ideas which unceasing press, and pain this bosom by your wild excess, ah, kindly cease, for pity's sake subside, nor thus overwhelm me with joy's rapid tide, my beating heart, oppressed with woe and care, has yet to learn such happiness to bear, from grief, distracting grief, thus high to soar, to know dull pain and misery no more, to hail each opening morn with new delight, to rest in peace and joy each happy night, to see my Lycidas from bondage free, restored to life, to pleasure, and to me, to see him thus adorned with virtue's charms, to give him to a longing mother's arms, to know him by surrounding friends caressed, of honour, fame, of life's best gifts possessed. O oh, my full heart, tis joy, tis bliss supreme, and though tis real, yet how like a dream! Teach me then, heaven, to bear it as I ought. Inspire each rapturous, each transporting thought. Teach me to bend beneath thy bounteous hand, with gratitude my willing heart expand. To thy omnipotence I humbly bow, afflicted once, but ah, how happy now! Restored in peace, submissive to thy will, O bless his days to come, protect him still. Prolong his life, thy goodness to adore, 
and oh, let sorrow's shafts never wound him more. Nessie Haywood, London, October fifteenth, seventeen ninety two, midnight. End note thirty four. Mr. Graham's daughter. End note thirty five. Several elegiac stanzas were written on the death of this accomplished young lady. The following are dated from her native place, the Isle of Man, where her virtues and accomplishments could best be appreciated. How soon, sweet maid, how like a fleeting dream, the winning graces, all thy virtues seem. How soon arrested in thy early bloom, has fate decreed thee to the joyless tomb. Nor beauty, genius, nor the muse's care, nor aught could move the tyrant death to spare. Ah, could their power revoke the stern decree, the fatal shaft had passed unfelt by thee. But vain thy wit, thy sentiment refined, thy charms external and accomplished mind, thy artless smiles that seize the willing heart, thy converse that could pure delight impart, the melting music of thy skilful tongue, while judgment listened, ravished with thy song. Not all the gifts that art and nature gave could save thee, lovely Nessie, from the grave. Too early lost, from friendship's bosom torn, O might I tune thy lyre and sweetly mourn. In strains like thine, when beauteous Margaret's fate oppressed thy friendly heart with sorrow's weight, then should my numbers flow and laurels bloom in endless spring around fair Nessie's tomb. Alluding to some elegant lines by the deceased on the death of a female friend. End note 36. The following appears to have been written by Mr. P. Haywood on the day that the sentence of condemnation was passed on him. Silence, then. The whispers of complaint. Low in the dust, dissatisfaction's demons growl unheard. All, all is good, all excellent below. Pain is a blessing, sorrow leads to joy joy, permanent and solid. Every ill, grim death itself, in all its horrors clad, is man's supremest privilege. It frees the soul from prison, from foul sin, from woe, and gives it back to glory, rest, and God. Cheerly, my friends, oh cheerly, look not thus with pity's melting softness. That alone can shake my fortitude. All is not lost." Lo, I have gained on this important day a victory consummate o'er myself, and o'er this life a victory, on this day. My birthday to eternity, I've gained dismission from a world, where for a while, like you, like all, a pilgrim, passing poor, a traveller, a stranger, I have met still stranger treatment, rude and harsh, I so much the dearer, more desired, the home I seek. Eternal of my Father, and my God, I then pious resignation, meek-eyed power, sustain me still. Composure still be mine. Where rests it? O mysterious providence, I silence the wild idea. I have found no mercy yet, no mild humanity, with cruel unrelenting rigor torn and lost in prison, lost to all below. And the following appears to have been written on the day of the king's pardon being received. O oh, deem it not! presumptuous that my soul grateful thus rates the present high deliverance it hath found. Sole effort of thy wisdom, sovereign power, without whose knowledge not a sparrow falls. Oh, I may I cease to live, ere cease to bless that interposing hand which turned aside, nay, to my life and preservation turned, the fatal blow precipitate ordained, to level all my little hopes in dust, 
and give me to the grave. End note 37, with which the editor, at his request, was favored at the time. End note 38, the only authority that then existed for laying down this island was that of Captain Cateret, who first saw it in 1767. It is so high, he says, that we saw it at the distance of more than fifteen leagues, and it having been discovered by a young gentleman, son to Major Pitcairn of the Marines, who was unfortunately lost in the Aurora, we called it Pitcairn's Island. He makes it in latitude twenty-five degrees two minutes south, and longitude one hundred and thirty-three degrees thirty minutes west, no less than three degrees out of its true longitude. Three minutes would now be thought a considerable error. Such are the superior advantages conferred by lunar observations and improvements in chronometers. Pitcairn's Island has been supposed to be the Encarnacion of Curios, by whom it was stated to be in latitude 24 degrees 30 minutes and 1,000 leagues from the coast of Peru, but as he describes it as a low sandy island, almost level with the sea, having a few trees on it, we must look for Encarnacion somewhere else, and Ducey's island, nearly in that latitude, very low, and within five degrees of longitude of Pitcairn's island, answers precisely to it. End note 39. As the matter of Christian's death has been differently reported to each different visitor by Adams, the only evidence in existence, with the exception of three or four Otaheitean women, and a few infants, some singular circumstances may here be mentioned that happened at home, just at the time of Folder's visit, and which might render his death on Pitcairn's Island almost a matter of doubt. About the years 1808 and 1809, a very general opinion was prevalent in the neighborhood of the lakes of Cumberland and Westmoreland, that Christian was in that part of the country, and made frequent private visits to an aunt who was living there. Being the near relative of Mr. Christian Kerwin, long member of Parliament for Carlisle, and himself a native, he was well known in the neighborhood. This, however, might be passed over as mere gossip, had not another circumstance happened just about the same time, for the truth of which the editor does not hesitate to avouch. In Four Street, Plymouth Dock, Captain Haywood found himself one day walking behind a man whose shape had so much the appearance of Christians that he involuntarily quickened his pace. Both were walking very fast, and the rapid steps behind him having roused the stranger's attention, he suddenly turned his face, looking at Haywood, and immediately ran off. But the face was as much like Christian's as the back, and Haywood, exceedingly excited, ran also. Both ran as fast as they were able, but the stranger had the advantage, and, after making several short turns, disappeared. That Christian should be in England, Hayward considered as highly improbable, though not out of the scope of possibility, for at this time no account of him whatsoever had been received since they parted at Otaheite. At any rate the resemblance, the agitation, and the efforts of the stranger to elude him, were circumstances too strong not to make a deep impression on his mind. At the moment his first thought was to set about making some further inquiries, but on recollection of the pain and trouble such a discovery might occasion him, he considered it more prudent to let the matter drop, but the circumstance was frequently called to his memory for the remainder of his life. End note 40. This Nobbs is probably one of those half-witted persons 
who fancy they have received a call to preach nonsense. Some cobbler escaped from his stall, or tailor from his shop-board. Kitty Quintel's cant phrase, We want food for our souls, and praying at meals for spiritual nourishment, smack not a little of the jargon of the inferior caste of evangelicals. Whoever this pastoral drone may be, it is but too evident that the preservation of the innocence, simplicity, and happiness of these amiable people is intimately connected with his speedy removal from the island. And note 41. Well may Adams have sought for rules for his little society in a book, which contains the foundation of the civil and religious policy of two-thirds of the human race. In that wonderful book, into whose inspired pages the afflicted never seek for consolation in vain. Millions of examples attest this truth. There is no incident in Robinson Crusoe, observes a writer in a critical journal, told in language more natural and affecting than Robert Knox's accidental discovery of a Bible, in the midst of the Canadian dominions of Ceylon. His previous despondency from the death of his father, his only friend and companion, whose grave he had but just dug with his own hands, being now, as he says, left desolate, sick, and in captivity, his agitation, joy, and even terror, on meeting with a book he had for such a length of time not seen, nor hoped to see, his anxiety lest he should fail to procure it, and the comfort, when procured, which it afforded him in his affliction, all are told in such a strain of true piety and genuine simplicity as cannot fail to interest and affect every reader of sensibility. End note 42. If there were three instruments and three boats, there must have been one for each, for the quadrant was just as good as a sextant. Editor. End note 43. The mistake is here again repeated. It would be absurd to suppose that one boat had both quadrant and sextant. End note 44. It is not explained with what kind of fuel they performed this distressing operation. End note 45. Here again is another mistake. The number must have been eleven at most, one of the boats having parted before the others reached the island. Editor. End of End Notes End of the eventful history of the mutiny and piratical seizure of H.M.S. Bounty, its cause and consequences, by Sir John Barrow.